Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. I've been at Tory Party Conference this week where Gillian Keegan was getting tough on UCU, Michelle Donnellan was kicking wokery out of science, immigration was the talk of the fringe, and back home we've got data on analytics. It's all coming up. I've, I've never seen anybody say, actually, the data collection on sex and gender is the thing which is driving our huge institutional problems when it comes to work science. I've, I've just never heard it said anywhere. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me for a volavon and a glass of warm wine around the fringe of HE policy, as usual, three terrific guests. In Old Oak Common this morning, Julian Grabber is Deputy Chief Exec at the Association of Colleges. Julian, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I went for a walk with an old friend on Sunday and we reminded me of the joys of the Half Man Half Biscuits first album, so I spent Sunday afternoon listening to it. Excellent stuff. In Norwich today, Elise Page is Postgraduate Officer at UEA Student Union. Elise, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Um, My highlight of the week is yet to come. It's that I will be temporarily leaving this country to visit some family in the Republic of Ireland. Oh, lovely stuff. And in Manchester, James Coe is Associate Editor at Wonky. James, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, uh, on a football theme, Julian, all I want for Christmas is a Duke of the Park away kit. But for me, it was Newcastle United beating PSG 4-1 last night in the Champions League. I don't don't really understand. Anyway, so yes, we start this week with minimum service levels. Julian Keegan's speech to Conservative Party Conference had a run at the outrageous behaviour of strikes in HE, James. They did. Right. So, effectively, what has been announced is that the government have said they are going to launch a consultation on minimum service levels during industrial action at universities. So, this is basically coming from the Minimum Service Levels Act at the moment, which aims to strike a balance between can key public service workers go on strike while maintaining minimum service levels? The idea that Gillian Keegan has is actually, could you apply this to higher education? to prevent uh, as much strike action, particularly for final year students. It is fraught with difficulties, but the very, very core debate is going to be, is it acceptable, appropriate, even possible to maintain a minimum service standard in face of strike action? Hmm, Interesting stuff. Julian, is this going to cover HE and FE, do you reckon? Uh, I'm pretty certain it will. I mean, all the press releases said it would be for universities, but any of these regulations seem to apply to registered HE providers, which is a bit of a frustration sometimes for colleges because we end up being double regulated. It's not something that colleges have specifically asked for, but if it changes the employment relations climate, I guess that, yeah, colleges will participate in it. But it's very complicated, as your blog shows. Yes. I mean, what are some of those complexities, Julian? I mean, it's, um, yeah, yeah, it, it seems to me that, you know, this, 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 I mean, for a start, it will cover the whole of Great Britain, which is interesting. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I, I can only speak for England, but um, in, in um, a, a real complexity is the fact that you've got to define the service that has that then then has got to be a minimum. And so, so other departments have already consulted on minimum services. So the Home Office have consulted on the borders and Department of Transport have discovered what have consulted about what's a minimum train service, which is a debatable issue in some parts of the north. Um, and um, I, I think in higher education, it's going to be really difficult. I, my, my hunch is that it will kind of pin down, it will come down to um, students having a right to assessment, which I guess has been the big topic of the summer. I, I think there's a sort of, maybe I think the room's the wrong word, but the government might only last a year, and this is an awful amount of change to bring in before then, right? And the whole point of this legislation, or when it originally came in, was aimed at essential and time-critical care. I have no idea how you go about trying to talk about the boundaries of what is essential and time-critical in higher education in order to do something similar that is going on in the health service. I think you're right. But I mean, I've looked at the legislation and, you know, I mean, because they only have to lay regulations and because they'll only consult for, you know, five or six weeks, it's entirely possible that by January, whatever standard has been written down, in theory, higher education providers would be under pressure to take advantage of in the event of industrial action, you know, UCU winning the ballot and so on. Now, Elise, the, the, the politics of this get very interesting for for students and students' unions, don't they? Because I guess lots of students' unions would be opposed to, you know, some strike-breaking legislation. But on the other hand, you know, would you not take advantage of a minimum service level for students? Yeah, it's definitely a tricky subject because we're right in the middle of an issue where we know that the marketisation of education is bad for HE, but at the same time, we've got students who are thinking about their futures. They've got things that they need to go on to. And let's not forget international students with, with visa restrictions. So it is tough. And I think we have to strike a balance. Um, and I think it is key that students unions have a voice because we are creative and we are politically um, minded and we have that opportunity to set forward what students want while keeping in mind that um, our students do care about the health of higher education and their tutors and their teachers and actually some of our students teach our postgraduate researchers often do so it's part of the whole ecosystem um, and it's really about striking that balance. Hmm. I mean, interestingly, James, I guess one of the theoretical outcomes here is that strike action starts to move away from perhaps teaching and support and towards research and admin. Is that possible? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think this is the problem is where do you start to draw the line in what you believe to be a minimum standard or indeed to be an essential service? Because potentially it goes on forever and can include anything because the whole point of university is that the whole thing works together, right? And I, I think that's sort of the core of this debate is, is this a genuine attempt to ensure that students are getting the services which they've signed up for in a contractual manner with their institutions? If so, this feels like a concern for the Consumer Markets Authority, for the relation between the union or the university. Or is this what I think the likes of Joe Grady at UCU, when she called this a spiteful attack on workers everywhere from a party that's run out of options? This is the long tail of a wider anti-union sentiment from the Conservative government. I, I just I struggle to see what this would do above a more robust enforcement of student rights. Hmm. I mean, Julian, if if the standard comes out and focuses on, say, I don't know, you know, um, contact hours and getting marking done on time, I mean, is it just me? It, it feels hard to believe that um, Labour would repeal that. 
Well, I, well, I think, I think looking, looking, looking at the, I mean, the, 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 the legislation is definitely about political dividing lines, isn't it? In the sort of year and a half before an election and sort of getting, getting issues on, you know, but, 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 but in terms of the practicalities, I mean, this legislation does, sort of a legislation like this does exist in other countries. Um, but, um, it is, it is something that is only on certain services. And I think you, you just illustrated some of the points, but it would be really difficult to define, um, um, uh, what what the minimum services are, and then I think a second real problem is going to be is how how do you make how does an employer actually does the employer want to go around and um, enforce it? Do they want to go through the process of listing out um, people who are required to come into work and 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 all the rest? And so I think it will only be very big employers in sort of slightly more extreme circumstances who want to use it. So for example, you know, the passport services on the um, on the borders. I just, I can't see a scenario in which universities or other higher education providers particularly want to use it but maybe maybe not maybe maybe if it's in and it stays yes and and, and at least as you say this is, it feels as usual very sort of um you know taught programs undergraduate focused god alone knows what would happen you know i mean is the is the supervision of a pgr student uh, an essential minimum service i guess pgr students would say it is in some cases but pgr students are probably also more likely to oppose the idea yeah, absolutely. I think PGRs, so for context, I um, sort of was slash am a PGR, I'm halfway through my PhD. Um, there is this idea that PGRs can be left by the wayside. Oh, you know, you're going to be doing this PhD or this professional uh, doctorate. Oh, for years, you can sort of hang on. Um, and there are so many regulatory things um, in the UK that completely ignore postgraduates. It's the same for postgraduate taught. Um, the NS- NSS and, and I, I think the TEF as well. And so there, there's not even as much of a pressure to care about this sector, this part of the student body. Um, and actually, there is <laughs> the thing with researchers is that like we often we're sort of we're colleagues with our, our supervisors. We're working on a project together. Um, and so there's what often happens is supervisors say, oh, yeah, I'm striking, but I can meet you for coffee. And that's a wonderful thing because universities run on goodwill, but that's a middle ground where I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be feeling like I'm making my supervisor work when they shouldn't be or do unpaid work. But at the same time, I, I need to get my PhD done um, because I, um, my hand in date is now in 2028. So I think it's really, <laughs> I think it's really easy for PGRs to be left by the wayside and and for it not to even be part of the conversation. But I think it should be. And I think that our supervisors can't be kind of like given a, a raw deal just because PGRs aren't there. Too. I suspect, Elise, precisely for the reason that you say that in the end, the only way to make this manageable will be something around the return of exams in order to achieve a formal qualification of some sort. I, I can't see what would be practical beyond that when it comes to a minimum service standard. Yeah, the thing with exams is a really interesting one because um, there are lots of statistics out there about who does and doesn't do well in exams. So when we're thinking about drawing lines on things of what a standard is, um, we need to remember the flexibility and the um, diversity in assessments and how some things some things are not like, okay, you do it on this date and you get this grade. Education is about so much more than that. Well, fascinating stuff. More on the site about all of this. And obviously, as and when an actual consultation emerges from DfE, um, we'll keep you up to date. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. 
In this week on Wonky, my colleagues Steve Holliman and myself, Duncan Hindmarch, have been blogging about the Office for Students' requirement for assessment evidence to be kept for up to five years after course completion. We consider some of the potential challenges this poses to creative arts courses, which use authentic assessments to develop learner employability. How will access to outdated formats and apps be guaranteed? How will inspectors be able to judge the merits of work which may have been original when submitted, but cliched and out of date when reviewed years later? Rather than trying to step into the same river twice, we support constructive dialogue between HE institutions and the Office for Students, which would focus on more timely evaluation, as we all have the shared aims of ensuring that assessment is fair and credible. Now, elsewhere on the main stage, Michelle Donnellan this week, uh, formerly of Universities Minister, now of course at DSIT, was busy kicking wokery out of science, Elise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was. So, um, yeah, so this is some news from the Conservative Party conference. Um, on Tuesday, the conference saw a speech from Michelle Donnellan. She is the Secretary of State for the Department of Science. Um, a range of policies were mentioned. And while the sector might have been most interested in a lightning fast announcement of a £60 million regional innovation fund, really important for places like where I work in Norwich, another topic has grabbed headlines. The bulk of the speech was spent setting out a review into sex and gender data to, quote, ensure researchers and public bodies can gather the information they need to effectively plan key services. The review announced aims to ensure high quality data on sex and gender for it to inform research and policy. Donnellan said the Conservatives were, quote, the party of facts, the party of evidence, the party of science. A graphic launched on the Conservative Party Twitter page, well, X page, to coincide with the speech and said the party was kicking away cardiology out of science. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, certainly went viral. And if the intention was for it to go viral, then it uh, definitely did. James, uh, as I recall on Slack, you had to watch back Donald's speech three or four times to actually catch the funding <laughs> announcement, whereas, you know, most of it was this uh, this wedge issue. Yeah, Jim, I just, I, I honestly, I don't get it, is my overall feeling. And, and I don't get it on a few fronts. So genuinely, you know, this Conservative government has invested record amounts in R&D. It has launched a new funding slash innovation body in ARIA. UKRI has released some new plans. The REF consultation is out. There is more cash going to more places for bigger projects. And on top of that, uh, Association to Horizons being secured, of which everybody thought was not going to happen, including me, right up until the last minute when it did. And then the minister stands on stage and talks about work ideology and collection of sex and gender data. I mean, it's it's entirely absurd. I, and again, Jim, you're right. I watched the speech three times. I still don't really understand what the problem is. If we're talking about the collection of sex and gender data, surely the bigger problem is the representation of women in the workforce, or it's about unequal pay, or it's about leadership. I've, I've never seen anybody say, actually, the data collection on sex and gender is the thing which is driving our huge institutional problems when it comes to work science. I've, I've just never heard it said anywhere. And I don't understand, even if this is about winning votes, who is the constituency who's saying, I was going to vote for the Conservative government, but I've thought they are too soft on sex and gender in research. I, I, I don't understand the body there. There's such a good news story 
that my frustration is born out of the fact that people are going to focus on this rather than, as Elise rightly says, 60 million quid into regional innovation. It's it's a really good amount of money and a good news story overshadowed by all of this. Well, I mean, the answer to your confusion might lie in the reception it got in the, albeit, you know, relatively sparsely populated hall. Uh, let's have a listen. So to those who think that they have the right to impose this utter nonsense on science... Let this message today go out from this conference hall. We are safeguarding scientific research from the denial of biology and the steady creep of political correctness. Julian, this is, um, this is, this is wedge issue stuff for the base, isn't it? Or is there a real issue here? I think it's a, it's a, content, it's a, it's a contentious area, isn't it? And so, in a sense, getting an academic to do a review is, is perhaps better than doing nothing at all. But, yeah, but then turning it into a major part of a conference speech and to a kind of absurd graphic is, yeah... Is, is, is completely unnecessary. At least, the, the, I guess one of the concerns is that, you know, what this does is it, it sort of enables, um, you know, one side of this debate to be what some people would argue is quite transphobic. Absolutely. So um, there are a couple of really important things to remember in, in this whole thing. So the first is that this is a moral panic, and it's specifically about trans women, which ironically, when there are, um, when feminism is being appropriated to enable transphobia, it's women who are focused on and who are victimized. It's trans women rather than trans men, for example. And we have to ask why that is. And that to be clear, there shouldn't be any uh, discrimination. Um, another thing is that all things are ideological and you can't take ideology out of science because everything we do as humans in a society is is ideology. Um, and so taking one stand or another, like no matter who we... Um, no matter who the country gets to do this review, they will bring their own um, their own views to it. And actually, the academic um, professor Professor Alice Sullivan, um, I had a read of some of her uh, recent articles, and I was actually quite concerned with some of the things that she was saying, describing that the statement "trans women are women" could be assumed to be a quote polite fiction. Um, now, let me be clear. Uh, <laughs> trans women are women um and i think it really does speak to ironically the ideological drive within the conservative party but we know it's not the whole conservative party and we know that the people they're trying to speak for don't necessarily have these views so uh, for example there was um i think it was a yougov statistic that said that very few lgbt women actually have negative views of transgender women um and a conservative a transgender conservative mp said that you know there for example with the nhs numbers there haven't been any complaints about uh, for example the the issue of uh, trans women in in women's um wards but julian this thing on um you know this thing on science um it is interesting isn't it because on on one side of this debate people will go well you know you can't change someone's sex science is science facts are facts but on the other hand it, it doesn't it seem kind of weird to be on the one hand supporting academic freedom and then saying well we're going to you know in, in, impose a kind of definition or you know i mean have a review of this sort i don't know i mean I, it doesn't seem to hang together to me yeah no i mean there, 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 there is a definite desire to look for conflict where actually it's a 
it's 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 an evolving and complex area which is 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 creates lots of diff lots of lots of difficult issues and lots of yeah effectively arguments in some cases hate and I think sometimes it's about trying to find solutions rather than state conflict. James, just before we uh, come off this, the, the, on the on the, on the kind of actual announcements that were made this week in terms of actual new money, just just remind us what was in there. Yeah, so the the, the actual announcements. Um, so the regional um, investment regional investment fund, uh, not the catchiest title, which means we have Kef, Tef, Ref, and Riff uh, now as a mix. Um, is effectively 60 million quid of what looks like additional money, but we'll have to confirm it as more guidance comes out, based on existing funding hypothecations to work on collaborative projects about economic regeneration in people's local areas. Like, the actual definition of what most people would think is probably levelling up money in places that needed to do good stuff with local people, which, again, is the frustration that we've got into this Culture Wars thing yet again. Well, fascinating stuff. More on the site on uh, both the funding stuff and the Culture Wars stuff. Um, Now, every week on the show, we look back at how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. One of the phrases we know about higher education is this term town and gown. It sets up an opposition between the university and the townspeople around it. And this comes from the oldest parts of our sector and, to some extent, has shaped some of the changes all the way from the beginning. The oldest document in the University of Oxford archives is the outcome of the riots in 1209. The university shut down after a bloody conflict between town and gown. Some of the members of the university stayed away forever, remaining in Cambridge. A townswoman had been murdered by a student and the townspeople helpfully executed a different student in revenge. Membership of the university was key. A key focus of it at the time was theology. So there were clerks. They were in some form of clerical rule, and therefore this fell into that Plantagenet problem of the area of jurisdiction of the king over the church. This king, John, was currently excommunicated, and so it was the papal legate who was put in charge of sorting this out. He sided with the university, granting it powers over the town and putting its members beyond the authority of the town's authorities. Low-level disputes continued. If you look through the letters from the king to Oxford, there's all sorts of things about um, stopping uh, pigs roaming in the streets or stopping people slaughtering in the town because the smell was so bad. But this finally gets to a height at the riot that occurs on St Scholastica's Day. In 1345, some students and priests uh, were drinking in the Swindlestock Tavern at Carfax, right in the heart of town and started to complain about the quality of the wine. The landlord responded to the complaint with stubborn and saucy language, whereupon the student threw a quart pot over his head. Local people came to his aid, uh, and the bell was rung, and the university retaliated by rousing its students to lay into the fray. People came from outside the town to join in, and the riot took on a very, very serious effect. In all, 62 scholars were killed. The riots were severely punished afterwards. The king decided to punish the townsmen of Oxford with an annual ritual humiliation that continued for 500 years. Every St Scholastica's day thereafter, the mayor and bailiffs had to attend a mass for the souls of the dead and to swear an annual oath to observe the university's privileges. They had to bring 62 citizens with them, representing the number of scholars slain, and hand over 63 pence usually in small silver coins. This kept getting regularised, so Queen Elizabeth enforced this rule and setting out the terms of the um, oath that people would have to swear. 
You shall swear that truly you shall observe and keep them all manner of lawful liberties and customs of the said university, which the Chancellor, Masters and Scholars of the said university have reasonably used, without any gainsaying, saving your fidelity to the Queen's Majesty, so help you God. There was a moment where at least one mayor decided not to play along. Thomas Dennis, the mayor in 1643, decided not to appear and was summoned. But his complaint of why he didn't come was the original reason was superstitious and perhaps they often jeered at by the scholars that they had to come and do this act. But it continued. Eventually, in the 19th century, they were let out of having to go to the church to deliver the money and were just invited round to the vice-chancellor's house where they would pay the money in a smaller ceremony. But finally, Mr Isaac Grubb, then the mayor, decides he wasn't going to play at all. He didn't turn up. But the good news was that after a certain amount of um, discussion in which it said that he stated in, in, stated in emphatic language what he'd be before he'd stand it, the university did nothing about his refusal and the ceremony stopped. There was a celebration uh, to uh, mark the end of this um, process, but that's it. No more trailing the University of Oxford, um, the people of Oxford having to trail to the University of Oxford to give them 63 pence to make up for killing 63 scholars. Now, elsewhere around the fringe of Conservative Party conference, it was immigration that was packing out the seminar rooms, Julian. Yeah, I think um, um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, got... um, uh, lots of uh, support within the hall and lots of criticism outside for her speech um, about about how she was cracking down on um, and she was going to crack down on immigration. But clearly there's other issues in the fringe sessions. And so the immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, um, said that um, uh, high levels of immigration um, were causing a struggle to um, get the housing that um, students need in university towns or cities that they want. And um, there are clearly pressures and there are issues i think it's it's a it's a rightly contentious issue and you've you've done a thing on the um wonky blog jim on um on on how the numbers may actually be peaking before the dependent ban comes in and i think there are there's 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 definitely issues which the sector needs to face up to about um how it can offer students a yeah a full experience it's not just about the teaching it's also about making sure that there's housing available it's also making sure that the agents who are employed telling the truth and there's lots of there's, there's lots of issues in there to unpack yes at least i mean one of the things i picked up around the fringe was that w- whereas you know lots of people would say look it's the net migration figure that matters it's the number of people that stay because the numbers are so high actually increasingly <clears throat> speakers and contributors on the fringe were, were, were worried about just the sheer numbers while they're here putting kind of pressure on stuff i mean this this problem in particular of student accommodation is um, um, you know, being faced by all sorts of people around the country, isn't it? A hundred percent. We've already had issues around the country with RAC. That's caused a lot of disruption. Um, but we've also got the the overall issue that we need high quality, appropriate accommodation for students. Um, we often see, yeah, around the country, but also in Norwich, um, some very expensive accommodation going up. And it's also always aimed at single young students. Um my gripe with all student accommodation is that they tend to have single beds. Um, now, there are all sorts of reasons why we might not want a student be- a single bed, but it's not appropriate for families. And I've had lots of conversations already um, with largely international students who are here with their families 
Um, and I was speaking to an academic about this and that, that they don't get the support and they can't find the right accommodation. But it's actually really humbling when international students like move countries to come and study with us. And that's amazing and we value them, but they need to be supported. James, it strikes me that, um, you know, I mean, as usual, there's a kind of circular blame game on this one. But, um, you know, no one has a plan except that the sector does have a plan to expand, in particular, its number of international PGTs in the next two years. Yeah, and I think it's really tough to talk about these issues without saying, oh, it's all structural and it's the fault of modern contemporary capital. But, you know, in this case, it sort of is. So there's there's a few things going on here. Students and immigration is in the middle of the Venn diagram of wedge issues of which people will turn out and vote for, right? So there is a thing there. And in particular, we know of the people in that hall that they are more likely, demographically, statistically, to be more sceptical of immigration than people working in universities or the younger people who often populate universities. So it is undoubtedly a useful political wedge. But, but to Elise's point, my wider contention is there just isn't enough housing or enough foresight and planning. So the reasons why that students who are moving to the UK don't have appropriate housing is a lack of planning and a lack of, um, I suppose, foresight on the part of universities to actually, if people bring dependents, this is what's going to happen. And it's also a chronic lack of house building in the country more generally, which is leading to a competition for housing. So it's it's all structural, Jim. It's all politics and finance and all of that. <laughs> I mean, it may well be, but Julian, you know, I mean, locally, I mean, the, the, I guess the question is... If this problem is going to get worse in the next couple of years, if, you know, let's say that universities are successful in their financial targets around the recruitment of, in particular, international PGTs, um, who, who, whose job should it be to, to kind of at least have an eye on, you know, fixing this problem or understanding the size and shape of it? Whose, whose job should it be, do you think? I think, I think that there is a very, um, clear point it is actually the universities to think about it actually with other other authorities it, it 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 does it does seem like it's a problem in certain parts of the country more than others doesn't it in a way i mean the we, we've got a, a a university system that's getting more concentrated and so i mean colleges used to have quite a few international students um 10 15 years ago in smaller towns and um home office policy and other developments have kind of eliminated that so in some ways we've, we, it, it's 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 in it's in the town's um, certain certain cities and certain university towns where there's particular pressure, and I guess it's probably for them to work it through with planning authorities and and other people. But at the moment, central government hasn't really got much to help. I mean, it was noticeable. Rishi Sunak's speech said nothing about housing yesterday, and um, I, I don't quite know where government policy is in terms of more house building or or protecting renters or all the other things. But um, in a way, you have to work with the environment you're in. I, I agree with Julian. I, I think the sort of the other side to the house building coin is that the financial incentives placed in front of universities, because in financial terms, the home undergraduate recruitment market isn't what it was in terms of income, is to recruit international students. You can't. It's hard for them people to turn around to say to universities, "Oh, I see you've recruited a lot of international students. That's having an effect on the local population." Like it's it's the way the system's designed, isn't it? Hmm, but at least, although the system is designed like that, is is the you know, I mean, is there a level of responsibility here on universities to not recruit more than the local housing market can bear, or is the pressure just so great on universities that to maintain what they're doing, they have to do this? Yeah, I think it's really hard. Um, so, for example, in my context at the University of East Anglia. International students are seen as the fuel that's going to keep the university running because international students are used 
in a lot of in a lot of ways as sort of cash cows and in my opinion it's sort of a form of neo-colonialism now more diversity in Norwich is a wonderful thing and we want that um and it's I don't know it's a hard question um I think there is a responsibility for universities to understand the impacts in terms of how it's going to affect the students themselves um I think there is a responsibility over, over welfare and at the moment there seems to be for a lot of universities come over here give us your money um oh you you can figure the rest out yourselves um but you know you're getting a lot of money off of these people maybe maybe it's time to stop thinking about people as money well, well one of the problems is expand is, is rapid expansion isn't it in a way and i, I don't want to sound sort of too like i'm in favor of the status quo but whenever an education institution expands too quickly often you get problems and you get that you get that in my sector with domestic students you get it with um, um universities with domestic students you also get it with university of international students i think there's, there's something about fresh and percentages, which it might be helpful to think about. Yes, and I think just to add to what Elise and Julian are saying, that undoubtedly people come to the UK for a UK education because despite all of what we discussed about, it is one of the UK's leading assets. And I just often wish we spoke about that more and exactly to Elise's point, respect people's agency in making the choices and giving the conditions they want. I mean, last year there was 60,000 affordable homes built in the UK for a population of 60 million people. I mean, there's less affordable homes than a few universities were recruiting them as international students. It is no surprise that people may feel local housing pressures when house building is so low. Other than, as Ali says, sometimes this specialist student accommodation, I, I can see why it builds tensions and these unfortunate dynamics. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, finally this week, away from Conservative Party Conference, we've got some new data on learning engagement analytics, James. Yes, Jim, we do. So there is new data on learning engagement analytics from Wonky and Solution Path this week, based on a survey conducted by Sybil of around 500 undergraduates. Students were asked a range of questions about how and how often they engage with their studies in universities and how comfortable they are with their data being collected. I think the most important finding and the key finding is that of the students who responded, they overwhelmingly supported the use of learning engagement analytics. 80% of respondents said that it was a good idea and only 11 said that it was not. Jim, what do we think? Hmm, interesting. Elise, what jumped out at you in this? 
So something that really jumped out at me from the student perspective is what is going to be done with this data in terms of supporting students. Now, I noticed that there was a a little line about um, how key the student advisor or student staff relationships can be. But we know that students are time poor and staff are time poor. Um, So it's all well and good knowing who's struggling and what's happening. But how are universities actually going to fix the problem? Hmm, this is interesting, isn't it, uh, Julian? Because, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I think about kind of, you know, s- support for students from a sort of, you know, people are flying blind, they don't really have data. And then, and then sometimes I think of it as some people have got so much data, they just don't know what to do with it. I think it's often a problem that there's investment or there's promises about getting lots and lots of data and um, it's not properly thought through how it's used. I thought it was really interesting research because it, um, it it's really good to talk to the students about how, what it is, that what, what data might be useful and how it would be used because quite often that um, institutions, it can be the last people they think, or the, the IT people selling to institutions can be the last people they think, um, think of in, in, in the issue. And um, but yeah, there's, there's, Elisa's point's really right. I mean, there's, 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 all, all this data could be collected, and people sometimes assume it is collected. But have people got the time to properly think it through? And then that's why you need to make sure you've got good dashboards and warning signs and traffic lights and all the rest. James, one of the things we're publishing on, on the site by the time the podcast goes out on, on uh, Friday is um, a look at what's been happening to the staff-student ratio in some subjects, in some departments, which kind of relates to uh, some of our previous discussions. And it does strike me that, you know, if you're a kind of personal tutor um, and you've got, you know, some warning signs on the dashboard, that doesn't mean you've got time to then sit down with the students that are flashing red and, you know, and make an intervention, does it? No, and I mean... to Julian's point, I suppose one of the risks is that we end up with a cumbersome data collection that just tells us things we have even less capacity to act on. And it becomes this sort of vicious circle of seeing lots of problems but with no time to do it. I, I think, you know, what, what I thought was really interesting about the work, and I think it is worth reading um, an article up on the blog by Michelle Craig and Debbie McVitie, where they make the point that it's about making sense of patterns. And doing that, you have to decide what is worth measuring. And then once you've done that, you have to link those patterns to actions around retention, academic problems or student well-being. So in, in some ways, I think this type of work is effective and data analytics is impactful, where it is a foundation tied into wider institutional strategies. And that institutional strategy might be actually we need to recruit more staff in these areas, or we need to invest in this, or we need more actions, etc. But where I've seen this work in universities, this sort of data-driven intervention type work, I think it can be really impactful. Mm. I, at least, I guess, I, I guess the other thing that, that often concerns people are things like, you know, both privacy um and you know some of the algorithms that are built into some of these things that suggest a problem because you know whilst often this stuff is framed as you know supportive interventions um i guess there's a suspicion that some academic staff might look at the engagement data and think well you know this person isn't this person isn't engaging enough and um, you know that'll be why they're getting terrible marks and you know, and you know actually they might they might have all sorts of struggles that are solvable yeah absolutely there's always going to be a um cultural and and psychologically psychological response to these things as well like you say um it reminds me of uh sociology a level um about <laughs> as, that, that'll be as in the british that'll do. be in the british back in 10 years time it really 
will. Oh, rest in peace. Um, of, uh, of in, uh, for example, secondary schools where if somebody is on the borderline between a D and a C, oh God, it'll be numbers now. Um, you focus on getting them to, to a C. But then if someone's sort of so far behind, if you've only got limited resources, what, what's going to happen to that, that really far behind students? So there could be some prejudice. And when we're talking about algorithms, we have to think about prejudice as well. There's often, um, always, you know, race and gender bias. So, so many questions about how this data is being used. And we love a bit of GDPR, but it's all those nuances in the bottom, in of all the nuances in the detail, um, of what's going on there. Julian, I guess the other thing that strikes me is that, you know, I mean, there's lots of surveys and lots of data appearing around um, engagement in HE that suggests that students, for all sorts of, I guess, understandable reasons related to cost of living and wider responsibilities and so on, are just engaging less. And, you know, I mean, do the algorithms need to kind of catch up with all of that? Uh, Definitely. I mean, and I think there's a sort of of COVID and there's a social media and there's a kind of 2020s kind of impact as well, which is feeding through from um, schools to colleges and feeding through to universities as well. I think it's it's really big. And at the same time, the the sort of expectations of institutions have risen, haven't they? That they they will make people safe, they will protect them from harassment. They will also the government expect them to protect from radicalisation. And at the same time, then the systems are creaking to actually cope with some of this. I, I mean, does this not already exist in places where if you haven't turned up to a few lectures, you get emails saying, hello, you are right. I, I think this is already happening, isn't it? But, but using, using, email, using email with um, uh, current generation of students may not work, actually. It's, uh, I mean, they know, it, they know it's there, but what, what, how often do we read it? Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose... God, it's rubbish for an interview, so it depends. But it does, it depends. So if the automated services, hello, everybody, this thing can't take place because of these conditions or some sort of natural occurrence or strikes sent to all, then for routine reasons, of course, you want to automate, automate that. If it is student hasn't turned up to lecture for six weeks and nobody has no idea what they're up to and they get an email saying, I know she's not turned up, is everything okay? Well, that's that's neither use nor ornament, is it? So I would I would advocate for the responsible use of automation where it says for administrative burden so people can spend the time doing all those sort of impersonal things that we know students are really into. Alice, I guess the other thing that strikes me is that if, if, if at perhaps institutional level or even perhaps department or faculty level, there's data that disadvantaged students aren't you know, engaging in certain things – I don't know, let's say disadvantaged students aren't engaging in both a, a, a 10 a.m. seminar and a 4 p.m. Uh, lecture. Th- there's two responses you can have to that, aren't there? One is to say, well, you need to start coming. Or, and one is to say, well, maybe we need to look at timetables. Oh, yeah, 100%. And uh, don't, don't talk to me about timetables. Because, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not just about saying that, oh, well, someone's not turning up as uh, a student's problem. Well, we'll send them an email and I guess they can sort it out for themselves. Yeah, it's you've got to look at when things are, um, who's not engaging. You know, maybe mature students can't come to things um, at certain times. Maybe if someone's a parent or has caring responsibilities, um, it's yeah, it's about structural stuff. It's about it's about an actual deep understanding of, I guess, like a diversity in the, in the student body. Um, and that, I mean, we know a lot of students don't want to come for 9am, but actually some love coming to 9am. So let's give students and staff 
the confidence and the empowerment to have those conversations and raise their voices when stuff isn't working for them. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Julian, Elise, James, Mike, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.